So we are on, this is now lesson, uh, yes, seven, and online it's lesson six because we dropped one. And the name, the title of the lesson is Jesus Helps People to Understand Him. Scriptures are Mark chapter 8 and verse 1 through Mark chapter 9 and verse 8. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand Jesus more and more. We thank you that at some time in our lives in the past, we did understand that he was the one who could give us eternal life. He is the only one who can give us eternal life. And in this lesson, he is telling people that the Messiah is both a reigning and conquering Messiah, but he's also a suffering Messiah. And he is both at once. And so people had trouble understanding that. Um, so anyway, we just pray that we would understand Jesus and love him more. Uh, in his name we pray, amen. And we'll get run into chapter 9 just a bit. So the first section is something that sounds familiar, and that's Jesus feeds 4,000. Remember back in chapter 6, he fed 5,000. So um, I'll, I'll start out reading that, okay? Anyway, chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people, because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About four thousand were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay, so this is similar, isn't it, to the feeding of the five thousand in chapter 6. There are some differences here. Back in chapter 6, th that's when Jesus told his disciples, okay, let's go and rest. And so they went across the lake, yeah, and they went to go and rest, and the crowd rushed around along the shore and met them at their place of vacation. <laughs> and said... And Jesus had compassion on them. Instead of being annoyed, he had compassion on them, and he said, well, I, you know, we'll feed them. Now here, they had been with him for three days. It says in verse 2, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. So what was Jesus doing with them for three days? He was teaching them. Right. 
So we have two needs as humans as far as nutrition. One need is for physical food. One need is for spiritual food. Jesus was supplying spiritual food to them for three days already. The teaching, you know, we've mentioned before that all through the gospel, Jesus is constantly teaching people God's word. So Jesus is concerned about both our spiritual and our physical nourishment. And he will supply both. Then in verse 4, it says, and the disciples are pretty, they're pretty dense here. I mean, this happened only two chapters ago. <laughs> it says, and his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people. Now back, that is a little different than verse chapter 6. In chapter 6, he said this. Chapter 6, verse 37. He answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? So they were worried about cost at that time. It says it would cost more than we have. Uh, here, it's kind of like they turn it back on Jesus. You know, where, where um, they're like, it's like they don't want to say, well, can you do what you did last time? You know, because they saw him do that before. They figure, well, is this reproducible? Um, why do you think they didn't just say, please do it again? Why do you think they didn't do that? Even though they saw it before. Yeah, you know, before it said that they had, uh, their hearts were hardened and they didn't understand about the feeding of the 5,000 when they were on the boat. You know, they're, they're dense. Why do you think they're so dense? The, the disciples, you know, they make us wonder, why are they so dense? Remember, the Holy Spirit has not come yet. They're in their natural state. And they do believe in Jesus. They're saved, you know, in the Old Testament sense. People were saved by trust in what God said in the Old Testament, but not everyone was granted the Holy Spirit. And uh, so they, and people struggle to understand spiritual things without the Holy Spirit. So we can't, you know, we shouldn't be too harsh on them. So verses 5 and 6, and he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven, and he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. So that is what we saw again in chapter 6. It says, he started giving them, and he continued giving them the bread until... Everybody had enough. So while he was giving the bread, more bread was appearing, you know. And uh, so it was, again, another miraculous thing. And then verse 7, he had a few small fish. It doesn't tell us how many. And he did the same thing with them. So they were multi fish were multiplying as he was handing it out. That's cool. So the question is, do you have any doubt God will supply your physical need for food. 
Is there any doubt? No, there's no doubt that God will supply your physical need for food. Jesus will supply your your need for food. And, uh, you know, that's where if, if you know, I have, it's, at, it's on my phone, a book about George Mueller's autobiography. George Mueller is a great so-called modern-day expression of that because he decided he would live by faith like they did in the old days because he said God's the same now as he was back in biblical times. And he never asked for a thing, but he prayed always for everything, and the Lord would supply him with food. Sometimes they would, him and all his orphans, he ran five orphan houses, would sit down at the table for dinner, but they didn't have any food. And food would come. Some people would come to the door with food while they're sitting there waiting. <laughs> you know? No, he was in Bristol, England. Yeah. And that was back in uh, in the late 1800s. So it's modern day compared to biblical times, but, you know, it's still quite a while ago now. But yeah, the Lord knows what you need, and he will supply it for you. Now, how about he will also supply your need for his word? Now, that is something we probably care about less although it may be more important than the other. You know, back in the first book of the Bible, everybody know the first book of the Bible written? The first book written. That's the first book Moses wrote. But the first book of the Bible is Job. Job was written around the time of Abraham. So what did Job say? Job said in chapter 23, verse 12, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So we want to develop this hunger for God's word because God's word causes our spirit to grow. It sustains our spirit just like physical food sustains our body. And we are two-part creatures, right? We're spiritual, or soul and, and spirit. You know, people debate about whether we're three-part or two-part. Are we body, soul, and spirit, or just the material and the immaterial? There's a lot of debate about that, you know. But our spirit needs God's Word. Our soul needs God's Word if we're going to function the way we're designed, just like our body needs food. And Jesus will supply both of those to us. Okay, so section B, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. That is verses 11 through 21. Can I get a reader for verses 11 through 21? Yeah, okay, thank you. So the title of our lesson is Jesus Helps People Understand Him. So that's what he's asking here. Don't, do you not understand? Do you not understand what? Who he is. Yeah, the kind of the central part of this lesson and really the whole gospel 
is Jesus or uh, Peter's declaration of who he is. And Jesus is trying to teach them who he is. So, verse 11, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So, there was a another pretty fantastic miracle here, feeding 4,000. And uh, later, the Pharisees came out. Of course, they could have heard by mouth what happened. See, they didn't really dispute the fact that he um, performed miracles because you couldn't dispute it. What were they disputing? They had a different idea of the power behind the miracles. Because remember back in chapter 3, verse 22, the scribes who came down, no, this is the Pharisees, this is the scribes, but they're saying the same thing. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So they were saying, yeah, he performs miracles, but they're satanic. And that was the unpardonable sin. That was the sin that withdrew the kingdom offer from Israel in the first century, and never to be given back until our day until the Jews in our this generation, hopefully, will call out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the kingdom will be offered again. So, so yeah, they didn't dispute the miracles. And, you know, in the Greek, the word for miracle is dunamis, where we get the word dynamite, power, you know, that's a Greek word for miracle. But the Pharisees discounted their origin. They thought it was satanic. And so they wanted a sign, which is a different Greek word called simeon. And they wanted some sign that let them know without a doubt that these things came from God. Yeah, they wanted to be sure that these things came from God. Of course, you know, at his baptism, God's voice came out of heaven and said, this is my son, with who I am well pleased. Okay, so, and that was done publicly, and I'm sure was very well known, you know. So, considering all that, what do you think is the leaven of the Pharisees? Unbelief. Unbelief. Yes, unbelief. And the, yeah, and, and that is the leaven of Herod also. Unbelief, because, you know, Herod was intrigued uh, by John and things like that, but he didn't believe. He didn't believe it. Some snake came up to her. You know, she knew what the Lord had said. The snake gave her different information, and she trusted the snake instead of God and thought, well, snake knows more than God does. So that was a... That was a boo-boo. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, now we, we understand that you want that uh, miracles in and of themselves do not authenticate things as coming from God because Satan can do miracles. Okay? So, if there's a miracle, what corresponding evidence do we need to accept it? 
as from God. There are two things that we need when miracles are showing up, you know, if a miracle shows up. The one is the miracle, but the other is what is the miracle worker saying? What is he saying? If what he says is consistent with prior revelation in the Bible, that is a true prophet. That is a true miracle worker from God. And that is what Jesus was doing. He never said anything that was not biblical. He said a lot of things that were against the rules of the rabbis because the rules of the rabbis were not biblical either. You know, because they made things up that, that uh, discounted the law of Moses and what was prior revelation. Um, to make it easier. You know, they did this to make it easier for them to, you know, follow it so they could feel good about themselves, so that they could have pride in themselves, which is a sin. We we know enough, that's right, to realize that he is a reliable source. Yeah, I mean, he is God and we're not, and so sometimes we can't understand him, <laughs> you know. Yeah, sometimes we cannot understand him, and we need help, you know. Yeah. But, you know, that's our last month's uh, memory verse. Let's see if I can do it. It was Acts 17.11. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see whether these things were so. That is how we tell if a miracle worker is legitimate. Is what he is saying consistent if we look in the Bible? Does it agree? If it agrees, okay. If it does not agree, he is to be rejected. The Pharisees rejected him based on their false teaching. Okay which they put over the Mosaic Law. And that's why they committed the unpardonable sin. So in verse 12, sighing deeply, Jesus is like, oh boy. <laughs> sighing deeply in the Spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So Mark is very abbreviated in everything. I like him. But uh, Matthew adds, in uh, Matthew 16, it says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Of course, Jonah was three days in the fish. Jesus will be three days in the earth and be resurrected. That is the sign of Jonah. And that fulfills Psalm 16.10. Psalm 16.10. Psalm 16, 10 is a prophecy 
of the resurrection of the Messiah. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So he would be dead for three days, not long enough to rot, and then he would come back. So in verse 14, 15, uh, because the disciples had forgotten to take more bread, they just had one loaf. It says, and he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And he thought he was chiding them for not bringing enough bread with them. So they were thinking about physical things when he was thinking about spiritual things. In the Bible, what does leaven represent? Usually it represents sin. Leaven represents sin. You know, that's why the you know, the Passover, they were to cleanse every bit of leaven from their houses and things like that is a sign of you know getting rid of sin getting rid of sin leaven is a is a symbolic of sin so the leaven of the pharisees and the leaven of herod is this prejudged unbelief they do not look at the evidence they decide ahead of time and then they look for evidence for what they want to they want want to confirm and they ignore the evidence that denies what they believe or don't believe. So, But the disciples didn't get it. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And uh, they forgot. I, I could totally, uh, you know, I, I do stuff like that all the time. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, so anyway, Jesus is warning against a settled unbelief that miracles will not fix. Leaven is evil or sin. So what we want to know, and as we move more closely to the tribulation period, um, supernatural activity will increase in our world. And... People and people have to decide is this from God or is this from something other than God? So that is how you decide. If there is something miraculous and there is a message associated with it, the message must be consistent with biblical revelation. Then it's from God. But there will be multiple, multiple deception. Will There is already a lot of deception in the world. You know, the, the news media frequently uh, misrepresents what's happening uh, to push a narrative, you know, because they want us all to have worldwide socialism right now. And um, so, you know, the, the stuff that they push, climate change, is not biblical. From Genesis 8.22, we know that the climate, will cold and hot, will fluctuate back and forth. has nothing to do with humans. Um, this thing they're pushing about transgenderism and, uh, and homosexuality is not biblical. You know, um, the push for socialism itself is not biblical. God is a capitalist. <laughs> he believes in private property. And so 
Um, you know, much of the what is pushed through the news and the liberal me- media and even the liberal churches is not biblical. Yeah, no. And so, you know, that's uh, kind of the promotion of occultism. So, but supernatural activity will happen. You know, I, I personally believe, you know, people talk about UFOs and things like that. UFOs since around the, isn't it interesting that UFOs have, come into fruition since the formation of the nation of Israel around around the late 1940s sightings of UFOs and I've heard people say well Satan knows that when Israel's formed that means time is short he's ramping up things you know because I I think UFOs are real I do not think they're little green men I think they're demonic manifestations. Um, and so, because Satan is the prince of the power of the air, is he not? Yeah, and so, and I think, you know, probably, this is this is speculation for me, but when the rapture happens, that will be used for a reason, for the disappearance of all these people. And people will believe it. That's what I think. Because they have to come up with something. People have di- have disappeared. Where did everybody go? You know, um, they'll have to have a reason, and I think that will be a good reason. And it's interesting now that even the government itself is having hearings on UFOs, saying there are UFOs. They're reported by Air Force pilots, things like this. You know. Um, so that is supernatural activity in our world today. Now, there's no message associated with that. We, we, we hear no message from these UFOs, you know. But there will be supernatural activity associated with messages also, especially in the tribulation period. That's why we put on the armor of God. The armor of God is protective uh, against those things. Okay, so... Section C, a blind man and Peter. So in verses 16 through 17 of chapter 8, you know, Jesus is chiding them. He, he asks them, do you have a hardened heart? Do you have eyes and not see and ears and not hear? And then he said, twice he multiplied physical bread. So don't, he's saying, please understand. <laughs> you don't have to worry about your food. When I'm with you, you know, I can give it to you. You don't have to worry about it. So he's trying to teach them who he is. Okay, so a blind man and Peter, this is verse 22 through 30. I'll go ahead and read that one. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village." 
Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Okay, so Bethsaida now is on the northeast Sea of Galilee. He goes back and forth across the Sea of Galilee all the time, doesn't he? Just back and forth. They brought a blind man to him, which is interesting because Jesus just said, do you have eyes and you don't see? And then they bring a blind man to him. <laughs> and uh, verse 23, taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. So most of his miracles he did in public. He did in front of other people here. He brings him out away from people. He brought him out of the village. Um the commentaries that I had said that he wanted to establish a connection with him. Um, this is rare that he did not heal in a crowd. And this is the only place where Jesus does a two-step miracle. Most of the time, he, you know, people just touch his clothes and they're totally healed. Or, some, you know, he just snaps his finger and they're totally healed. Um, here it's a two-step thing. And the commentaries, and I don't know, but it seems reasonable, are saying Jesus is making a point concerning the disciples here, that their learning is slow, you know, as far as understanding what's going on uh, with their teacher. And again, I think because they don't, they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit yet. So verse 24, he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees. They're walking around, so this is there's an improvement, but uh, it's not complete. This is after he spit on his eyes and laid hands on him. And then, you know, what's interesting is that Jesus asked him, do you see anything? Like he's checking. You know, we never see that in other places. He just does it. Sometimes he'll do it from miles away. Um... So I'm not sure what's happening here, but it's unusual. And then verse 25, Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. So the healing was, again, complete, even though it was a two-step process this time. And Jesus, as he's done many times before, sends him home in secret. Says, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village, just go home. So, why do you think he did this? Multiple times. He did that to the, de the uh, demon possessed man with legion, remember? He said, Go home. He told him, him to tell the people at home about what God had done for him. But he's told people, Don't say anything. Why do you think he keeps telling him not to say anything? And remember, after the first feeding of 5,000, they wanted to make him king by force. 
They wanted to make him king by force, and that's why he left there quickly. Jesus' life was on a script, and he was following the script. Jesus' life was written out, you know, in some cases, a thousand years ahead of time. You know, Psalm 22, it's written about Jesus a thousand years ahead of time. Isaiah 53, 700 years ahead of time. You know, Micah 5, it was Micah, I don't know, 600, I think 600 years ahead of time. So Jesus' life was planned and written out in the Old Testament scriptures. And he had a timeline. That's why he was not telling people to, you know, because people get go crazy and try to make him the Messiah by force. And that's not how it was supposed to go down. Because he had to pay for the sins of the world. So can I get somebody to read? Our next section is Jesus teaches about bearing crosses. And I think this has been taught wrongly. Sometimes making it. Can I get somebody to read 831 through 91? Thank you. Oh, no, you're not done yet. <laughs> yeah, okay, now thank you. I think I was thankful before too. So verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is the first time he's openly taught this. That the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And that's where we see the uh, heaven, and we see the Father on the throne, and one like a Son of Man comes to him, to accept the kingdom or the rulership over the world. That is the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is the ruling and reigning Messiah. But the Messiah is also the servant of God. And that is Isaiah 52, verse 13. And... Uh, it extends to 53, verse 12. And it goes like this. Behold, my ser servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Apparently Jesus wasn't a very good looking guy, according to this. Okay. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid, hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? So he was killed. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. That's his resurrection there. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will lot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So I wanted to read that whole thing, but Jesus is both. He's the sacrifice for sin, and he is the ruling conqueror. And all that they were focused on was the ruling conqueror. And so here Jesus is, is teaching them that he will be killed. He'll be, you know, this is going to happen. And then Peter goes from, you know, Jesus told him in Matthew that this knowledge that he was the Christ came from God the Father to Peter. And in verse 32, it says, He was stating the matter plainly that he would die, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter just said Jesus is the Christ. What is the Christ? The Christ is the God-man. And immediately he begins to rebuke. God, who is Jesus, who he just said is Jesus. <laughs> he said Jesus is God, and then he rebukes him. Talk about arrogant, you know. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Now, can believers be used by Satan? Can believers be used by Satan? Peter just was. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we all have. I'm sure we all have. Yeah. Yes, we can be used by Satan. We can be used by the demonic powers when we operate in the flesh. That is what Peter is doing here. He wanted the reigning Messiah, and he wanted him right now. And he says, no, that can't happen to you, because we want to be ruling over Rome. That's what he wanted. That's from the flesh. Jesus says no. Otherwise, there would be no sacrifice for sin. You'd have to pay for your own sin. Yeah, I'm sure Jesus wanted to do that. Well, he did. I'm sure he did startle him when he said, Get behind me, Satan. 
Yeah. So we, we want to do our best to remain in the Spirit, you know, to walk in the Spirit. Because when we walk in the flesh, we can be manipulated and used by Satan as believers. And we don't, we don't want that. Yeah, and be in the Word. And be in the Word. The Word transforms our minds so that our reactions are godly. And yeah, have discernment. So then he he talks about how he himself is going to be killed, Jesus. And then he says, he summoned the crowd, so he wants everyone to know this. This is not something he's keeping secret. If anyone wishes to come after me, this is not just for the disciples, this is for everybody. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, in the Philippines, there are some people who crucify themselves because they misinterpret this. And that is not what he is saying. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, are we supposed to go to a physical cross ourselves? No. What is he saying here? Jesus already did it. To pay for our sin. Yeah, to pay for our sin. No, we don't go to the cross. But he does say, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So, is this a requirement for salvation? To deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? This is not required for eternal salvation. Why do we know that? We know that from John 3.16. God so loved the world. Yeah. We know that from John 5.24. If you believe, you've been transferred from death into life. We know that from Acts 16.13. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. That is what saves us eternally. What he is talking about here is how to be useful to the Lord. This is the standard life for the follower of Jesus. Discipleship. Yeah. You know, and as far as our eternal salvation, 2 Timothy 2.13 even says, if we are faithless, if we believe and then we lose our belief, we say, oh, I didn't really mean it. He remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. If you believe at one point in your life, if you believe, you're saved. You cannot become unsaved, even if you think that you don't believe later. But this is how you become useful to him in this life. And what does it and what does it mean? Well, what it means to us is Romans chapter six, verse ten through thirteen. Romans chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. This is what he's talking about when carrying the cross. It says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Why are we dead to sin? Because we died with Christ when we believed in him. But alive to God in Christ Jesus, because we are united with Christ in his resurrection. Okay, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now we have the power to do that. 
Why? Because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit and we have a new nature. So that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The Lord has things he would like for you to do. Present yourself to God to do them. Instead of going with your flesh, which is your own selfishness, that is what he's talking about in taking up your cross. Instead of doing your own thing, what you want for your own glory, for your own benefit, give that up and present yourself to him. You're now his slave. Lord, what would you like for me today? That's what you do instead. That is carrying your cross. Okay, it's not getting nails in your hands and things. And this is the standard life, and the, the follower of Jesus will be persecuted. That's in 2 Timothy 3.12, just like the Lord was. This lifestyle will lead to reward. It can be lost if you decide not to take up your cross. So you want to just live in the flesh, just do what you feel like. You'll lose your reward. You will not lose your salvation. Okay, so I'm just going to read this last section, which is 9, 2 through 8, which is the transfiguration. Because we're running out of time like we always do. Already ran out. Okay. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them any more except Jesus alone. So, Lord, we thank you for this lesson, and we pray that you would help us to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen.